Welcome to our October edition of Word with Bob Live, a little campaign edition. I always love this. Every couple of years, we get everybody together and uh, talk about the campaigns, about politics a little bit, and a little bit of a campaign song there, Take a Chance on Me. We got a lot of candidates uh, fighting for that and asking for a chance. So uh, with that, let's get the show started. Um, uh, falls in the air. Um, we're very excited for our autumn programming, uh, our chapter meetings, our are going strong and the launch of our 2023 dues renewals which will be coming out very very shortly to uh, a mailbox near you so uh, i want you all to look for that i am really thrilled to officially announce uh that dr seema verma as our opening keynote for the 2023 paradigm annual meeting in april a national health policy expert dr verma was the longest serving uh, administrator for the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services in Modern History. She was named by Modern Healthcare as the most influential person in healthcare in 2019. Verma led federal government efforts to infuse market competition, empower patients, and unleash innovation, producing historic reforms while also driving efforts to require price and quality transparency. So I want you to register for Paradigm now just to see Dr. Verma. We're really excited about this. And I want you to receive the lowest member registration for the rate we've ever offered, $895. So if you go there to rbma.org forward slash paradigm 2023, uh, you can register. Do that while you're watching A Word with Bob live today and enjoy uh, networking, enjoy some great speakers, and again, uh, a really big headline speaker with Dr. Seema Verma. So before we get into today's program, we have a quick housekeeping message from our friend, and communications and marketing manager, Will Sweet. Hey, Will. Hi, Bob. Um, yeah, all everybody um, who's on today, all lines have been muted upon entering our program. Uh, please use the Q&A feature to ask any questions you may have. This program is being recorded and the recording will be available to view by all attendees at rbma.org slash podcast after this session of A Word with Bob Live has concluded. That's great. Well, you know, I've been in meetings before where I've just wanted to say, or like you say, all lines have been muted. So, you know, maybe we should do that. Just all people have been muted. You know, if you have a question, just type it in and then we'll answer it. So that would be great. Well, we got the World Series coming up Friday. Uh, I know you're not a big Phillies fan because you're a Nats fan, but who do you think? What's your pick? Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of either team, but I do like uh, the Astros manager, Dusty Baker. Yeah. So I'm pulling for him, and uh, I hope the Astros win only yeah. for him. Dusty's been around a long time. They got a big guy in Verlander and some hitters and, you know. But the Phillies, I think they've got some locker room magic. So, uh, yeah, they got some big hitters, too. And Bryce Harper, boy, that that eighth inning, that if that didn't get you going, huh? 
Yeah, it, it'll be, I think it'll be a good one. It'll be fun to watch. All right. Well, great, Will. Thanks a lot for your help. Appreciate it. So our first guest today is a good friend of mine, a great RBMA volunteer. Uh, Kit Crancer is the Senior Vice President of Radiology Partnerships and Policy for Reyes Radiology. He's also the Executive Director of the Reyes Quality Institute. Kit serves on our Board of Directors as our President-Elect uh, and has been a key component of our advocacy efforts with his work and a founding member of our Radiology Patient Action Network. Kit, welcome to the program. How are you? Great, Bob. Thank you so much for the uh, for the kind introduction and uh, excited to be here and talk a little bit about RPAN and uh, Medicare Physician Fee Schedule. Yes, Kit is, as you can see, he's enjoying the great outdoors in, in uh, somewhere outside of Minneapolis today. Uh, and we're glad it's not snowing on you, Kit. Uh, yeah, let's talk about RPAN. We are entering into a really important phase of uh, of uh, radiology advocacy here. So, and I know you've been on the Hill a lot in the last few weeks. So tell us about what you're thinking in terms of physician fee schedule, those types of things, and what RPAN is gonna be doing on that. Yeah, yeah. so I'm, I'm really proud of the work uh, both by RPAN and the Federal Affairs Committee uh, over the past few years, actually, Bob, to kind of pave the way uh, for us to start looking, not just at, you know, beginning to blunt this chronic series of cuts, that radiology has faced over you know the past decade plus, but also start to talk about some of those systemic reforms. So where I think that RPAN has really played a role under you know your leadership and that of uh, you know Mark Kalmar and, and Linda Wilgus and, and Shannon Wilson uh, in developing this is to start talking about you know what do these cuts mean to patients, not just the clinicians, not just our radiologist partners who we yeah. obviously value. Um, but to start talking about what that means. So, you know, I, I, I think if, if you'd like for me to get into the poll, you know, we can talk about that. Sure. Um, but really kind of that, that, that direct outreach. So, you know, one thing that, that we worked on was we worked with Remington uh, Research Company, uh, who's a polling company that's nationally recognized on mm -hmm. 538 and some of the other websites uh, that folks may look at. Um, but to really research what these cuts, and we're talking about double-digit cuts, particularly when you factor in, you know, sequestration and some of the other inflation, some of the right. other elements that clinicians have looked at, you know, what does this mean to patients? What do patients think about potential burdens to access to care? Yeah, so a little, a bit of background for everyone. Um, RBMA uh, reached out to a couple of different organization uh organizations, including the Medical Imaging Technology Association, MIDA, as well as the Imaging for a Cause Foundation, which is a uh, patient access, uh, primarily Medicaid and indigent patients that actually RBMA manages the organization, but um, they've been very involved with providing uh, services to the indigent population throughout the country. So uh, we joined forces. Uh, we engaged uh, the Remington Research Group to conduct this survey. It was conducted uh, for a, about three days in October in September. Uh, uh, interviewed or surveyed 1,632 Medicare beneficiaries. So, um, really interesting results, uh, Kit. Maybe we should get into that a little bit around uh, what do people think of doctors, but what do people think of these cuts that are proposed for physicians? Yeah, let's do it. I, I, you know, the big takeaway and the one thing that I think made this poll unique was not just asking patients, but specifying, you know, what do they think about access to mammography? How do they feel about their, their current access to diagnostic imaging services right. uh, in general? And it's clear that over 90% 
uh, of those Medicare beneficiaries that were surveyed, you know, feel very strongly that maintaining that access to care is an imperative. So, right. you know, that was kind of the first takeaway that I think we had. You know, the other big takeaway, Bob, um, was, you know, what we found is nearly half of Medicare-aged women have not received their annual mammograms for the past three years. Yeah, that was an, uh, that really was an astounding finding. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, and I mean, obviously COVID had a huge role in that, but, you know, we've been out of kind of the lockdown phase of COVID for almost two years now, and women are still not getting back to get those screenings, which mean all the other screenings we all do, you know, we're not getting back to those as well. So I, I found I found that to be very uh, interesting coming out of the survey. Concerning and, and, yeah. and, and interesting, obviously, from a policy standpoint, uh, because you're catching a lot more of those, you know, stage one cancers at stage three, stage four, when they're significantly less treatable, more expensive if you want to look at a systemic uh, view on things. Um, and, and obviously concerning from a public health and an equity standpoint, uh, when you're talking about potentially diminished access to care down the road um, as well. So uh, right. very concerning. And then there was also the point that I know you and I've discussed at length where, you know, nearly one in four mm -hmm. uh, uh, patients have had trouble getting their doctor's appointments. Yes. Yeah. That access issue. Yeah. So how might uh, our, our PAN team our RBMA federal affairs team, take this survey, work it into a message to both the media. I know we've done some of that this week. We're, we were proud to be on Axios this week, uh, which was great. Uh, but also, how do we roll this now into messages to members of Congress? Because, and we're going to talk about this, the lame duck session coming. How do we, how do we take this information and use it? And Bob, I think our, our good friend Tom Greeson just mentioned that Axios article. Yes. And if you guys haven't seen it yet, Bob had a phenomenal interview. And Axios is, uh, if you don't subscribe, it's probably one of the top two or three most read individual daily newsletters uh, on the Hill. Uh, so we'd really recommend that folks take a look at that. Um, but Bob, no, that's a great question. So obviously, you and I have talked about reinvigorating don'tcutdocs.com. That was a phenomenal success. Uh, that we had uh, over the past couple of years. Uh, so hopefully we can get above that 10,000, you know, signatory mark uh, and, uh, and keep driving the, um, thank you, Tom, uh, and keep driving the messaging there. Uh, but I, I, I think sending this to, you know, sending an article like that or the press release, the memo uh, to their members of Congress would be key and say, look, this is an imperative. This is, here's what I'm seeing in my clinical setting. Here's what my physician partners are seeing. Uh, and, and really kind of echoing that message that these cuts are going to have a significant um, uh, detrimental outcome uh, to not only patient access, but potentially outcomes as well and health equity. You know, uh, Kit, you and I have spoken. Um, I was part of a focus group at my local newspaper up here in Schuylkill County, Pennsylvania, the Pottsville Republican Herald. And uh, uh, I, I took an opportunity to was talking to the managing editor about this physician cut issue. And he was just, I mean, he was really blown away. He was like, I didn't, I knew nothing about this, you know? And I said, yeah, that to me is the interesting thing. Um, each July, the Medicare physician fee schedule proposed rule is released. We go crazy. We write comment letters. We, and most of America just is asleep on this. Um, he was very interested in the topic, wants to do an article about it. And um, I think our members of Congress would be the same way. So that's why, I, I mean, I encourage our members today. Um, we, we've sent um, 
in a newsletter to our members the information about the survey, and I can get more specific. But people should take this. Our members of Congress, they're all home campaigning for the next two weeks. Find them, hand it to them, get it to them. It's not hard to do. They're everywhere. What do you think about that, Kit? Totally concur. Now's the time. Now's the time to get this in front of them and let them know that this is something that matters. Your, the patients that everybody in this group serves are their constituents. So that's your synergy, and that's what you're trying to drive home here. Um, and, and it's not just healthcare, Bob. It's 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 also if you're looking at greater the greater economic factors. The right. fact that, that you you really you know shine a light on this in the access article, but the fact that that Medicare physician fee schedule doesn't have that inflationary adjustment. Right. But but you know hops PPS do. So you have this growing delta between the Medicare physician fee schedule and some of those outpatient, uh, those hospital schedules, uh, which eventually is going to lead to consolidation. And I think it's a, a real genuine threat to independent practice moving forward. Yeah, when I was talking to that, uh, our, the local newspaper editor uh, about access, uh, again, he had never thought about that. I said, for instance, our local hospital probably does not have interventional radiologists daily there doing studies. Uh, they probably come over from Lehigh Valley and Allentown a couple times a week, once a week. But I said, if if access starts to get limited, and uh, you know, if you're if you're used to the breast image, you're coming in two days a week, and now they're only going to come in one day a week or one every other week. That is a huge limitation, and I think that's true all over America. Yeah. No, that's a that's an excellent point, Bob. And you start looking at at what does that mean for health equity long term as well. If you don't have, you know, if you, if you don't give patients those options, perhaps they can't get off work, perhaps right. they can't drive 30, 40 miles, whatever's necessary to get that care. So you start looking at some of those divided outcomes, which I think should be really concerning for policymakers uh, and public health officials moving forward. Well, and we know when you go on the Hill, uh, access, uh, especially rural hospitals, it's a huge issue in Congress, huge issue. Yeah. Tremendous, tremendous. Yeah. Well, thanks, uh, Kit. I appreciate the time today. Um, I know we're always asking for money, but we're going to ask again. I, I mean, it's really important to donate to our pan. Um, every dollar you donate, we use for advocacy. And uh, Kit, I, I certainly appreciate the time you you devote to RBMA and and to our pan and and your creativity and and your knowledge of of who to go to. So, if if you're right now, you're sitting there, you're eating your sandwich, you're listening to to us here. Uh, go to rbma.org forward slash RPAN. Uh, you can donate and those dollars go directly to our grassroots advocacy network. We're happy to lead in this grassroots area. It's It's been really exciting. And um, it's um, it's not so much that we're in Axios or on CNN.com, but it's we're getting a message out. And that's what's most important. Let's get that message out. Well, thank you for having me, Bob. And I look forward to uh, sitting back and learning from Shay and Ted, as I always do. So thanks well, so great. much. Well, thanks, Kit. Enjoy the great outdoors. I will grab a jacket as quick as I can. Thanks so much. <laughs> okay. Have a great day. Uh, great uh, conversation there. And again, if you go to rbma.org forward slash RPAN, uh, a couple of years ago when we started down this grassroots uh, journey, we suggested a donation of uh, based on $100 per doctor in your practice. And I think that's still a relatively uh, reasonable ask. And so we would ask for you to do that today. All of these things we uh, do in terms of surveying, uh, patch through calls to members of Congre Congress, 
managing uh, our uh, don'tcutdocs.com website. All that is funded outside of our budget and it's funded through our pan. So we encourage you to donate today. I'm uh, excited to have uh, these next two gentlemen here on uh, Word with Bob Live. Uh, we did this a couple of years ago. Uh, we had like a pre-election uh, conversation and we're going to do it again today. So uh, Ted Burns is the Senior Director of Political Affairs for the American College of Radiology and serves as the Chief of Staff at RADPAC, the ACR's political fundraising arm. Uh, he's a consummate uh, Washington, D.C. insider and and uh, we appreciate and a good friend of RBMA. He's, he's he's spoken at RBMA many times in our chapters. So, uh, Ted, welcome back. How are you? Oh, it's good. Thank you, Bob, for having me. And uh, obviously, I have to wear my Phillies hat. It's obviously. been a long it's been a long decade of no playoffs. So uh, sorry for the informality, but I have to do it. Well, that's OK. And Ted, I you and I, we, I was reminded of the. The only time I've been to a World Series game is with you. Is it a political fundraiser for right. then? For then, Mike Castle, you know, That's and right. uh, you know, hey, Mike's gone. But uh, anyway, our, our next guest is another consummate politician, Shay McCarthy. You all know Shay, senior vice president of Thorn Run Partners, our government affairs representative on the Hill since 2017. Shay really been has been our go-to guy on all federal legislation. So he represents RBMA on Capitol Hill and is a trusted partner and friend of RBMA. Shay, how are you? I'm good, Bob. Good to be back on the pop podcast. I'm not sure uh, if your audience is keeping score, but I seem to remember predicting a 50-50 Senate last time we got to get together for this panel. So I'm, you hoping, did. Uh, I'm hoping today's predictions live up to uh, our past precedent there. Well, and we're going to we're gonna do a little bit of that at the end. We're going to have some fun. I picked out some Senate races and, and uh, we'll probably talk about the World Series too, but what the heck, you know? What a great time of the year, though. Is it, you know, uh, I have to tell a political story. Um, it wouldn't be a show without it. But when I was running for the state Senate uh, and, you know, you're campaigning all the time, you come home on a Saturday evening, just glad you don't have to campaign that night. And it was the night that uh, 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 Gibson hit the big home run for the Dodgers. And, you know, I slept through it. It's one of my <laughs> I, I woke up in the Dodgers one. I'm like, what the hell happened? Oh, Gibson, he limped up and hit one out and I fell asleep. Oh, well, that, that was worth it. So anyway, hey, uh, we've got some interesting times coming up. So I was watching the movie Lincoln last night again, which I do occasionally to get inspired. It's one of my top five favorite movies. And I didn't realize the 13th Amendment was passed by the House by in a lame duck session. That's I mean, that's the whole key of the movie. But uh, so we're. We're heading here to a lame duck session and the possibility of congressional uh, leadership being changed. So I was thinking, Shay, let's start by talking a little bit more specifically about what is happening with um, physician payments between now and the end of the year um, for our members uh, to give them a little primer of what we're talking about. Right now, we're being faced with 10% plus cuts maybe break that down, explain what PAYGO is, explain what the conversion factor update is, just a little bit of uh, of uh, vocabulary here uh, to start us off. Appreciate that, Bob. And yeah, we've got a lot going on and Congress has, for better or worse, made it an annual tradition in recent years to address physician payment issues in December of every year. And we're kind of looking at a similar scenario mm -hmm. where the can has been kicked down the road all year, despite a couple opportunities where Congress probably could have addressed this earlier in the year. But 
to some extent, they like to see those proposed and final rules come out and have a strong sense for how things look before circling back to these issues. And to some extent, we're kind of a victim of the current system. And I think RBMA, for our part, would love to be part of the conversation for long-term reforms, where we're not fighting for payment to avert payment cuts at the end of the year. But that is the situation we're in. I think that we've been pretty successful on behalf of RBMA, but the physician community at large and, and Ted and his team at, at ACR have played a really significant role in, in, in averting cuts in recent years. And I do have some confidence going into the end of the year that we're going to figure out how to address some of these issues. And so how do you get to a potential nine or double digit cut? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What, what you see is that multiple things are going on at once, and there's a confluence of factors that Congress has the potential to address that basically have this multiplying effect where we do kind of get into this neighborhood of potential double-digit cuts on a year-over-year -year basis. At the outset, I'll start with Medicare sequestration. Sequestration, this 2% cut across the board to Medicare, it was put on hiatus during the pandemic, um, mm -hmm. but We've all sort of gotten used to living under sequestration. I think it passed for the first time in like 2012 or 13. Sequestration was implemented for several years. We got some reprieve during the public health emergency. Congress stepped in, put this, um, put the 2% sequestration on pause. And I think the physician community really needed that. Elective procedures had all been deferred. You know, revenues were right. way down. And, um, you know, we were kind of lauded as the heroes um, in pushing back um, against the coronavirus. But I think a lot of that goodwill is unfortunately starting to fade. The pandemic um, public health emergency is probably going to come to a um, come to an end at the beginning just, of next year. Did they, did they not just extend it? I, I was it's little... been extended into mid-January. What oh, the administration okay. has told us is yeah. that they're going to provide 60 days notice. Okay. So we had an extension in mid-October. By mid-November, the administration, starting at the Secretary of Health and Human Services, would likely make a public announcement that they plan to end the public yeah. health emergency. And, so and we're looking so out for that right after the election. Yeah. And just so everybody's clear, the 2% sequestration we talk about the last couple of years, that applies to every everything in government, not just, not just physicians, correct? Yeah, I, you know, healthcare, yeah. healthcare being my focus, I, yeah. um, I, I, I can speak that was my understanding. on Medicare, yeah. Bob. Yeah, okay. All right, good. All right, great. Go ahead. So, so yeah. Medicare sequestration has been phased back in. Yeah. Um, in the first quarter of this year, we were still living under the sort of freeze on sequestration, but beginning in Q2 and um, um, on April 1st, that 0% cut raised to 1%. And starting mm -hmm. in July, we went from 1% to 2%. We're now again living under full sequestration. And um, without congressional intervention, I think that we're going to continue to see the 2% cut um, uh, continue into next year. But it's on the table and it's something that we're pushing for. And it's part of these aggregate cuts. Yeah. Beyond yeah. that, we're talking about an additional across the board 4% cut under what's known as PAYGO sequestration. Mm -hmm. PAYGO is the sort of the broad term used. And um, what at a fundamental level, what this means is that Congress sets self-imposed budget caps mm -hmm. to basically um, it's the only way that Congress can avoid overspending and, and adding to the deficit in significant amounts every year. Yeah. They have these self-imposed budget caps. The truth is that they're kind of funny money because anytime they exceed the budget caps, they've tend to just ignore these rules called PAYGO. They've mm -hmm. 
what, what the term you'll hear used in Washington is they'll waive the pay-go scorecard to basically ignore any spending beyond their self-imposed limits. And so yeah. what we're effectively hoping is that Congress will do that again. Okay. Um, but yeah. we're in a little bit of a strange political scenario where Democrats are the ones that are effectively solely responsible for triggering sequest or PAYGO sequestration. It's right. the American Rescue Plan Act that passed at the beginning of the Biden administration with only Democratic votes. And I think that sort of ruffles some feathers on the Republican sure. side. And they want to make life a little bit difficult for Democrats. They negotiated right. the bill without Republicans being in the row. The room. They passed it through both chambers of Congress without a single Republican vote. And now they're asking for Republicans to hold hands with them and making sure that the potentially damaging budgetary effects of exceeding their spending limitations don't harm all these other portions of the economy. And this is one where the 4% PAYGO sequestration doesn't affect just doctors, but it would affect all domestic programs across the entire government okay from energy to farm programs to so um, we're not the only people and, yeah we're not the only people flying into dc to talk about this right that's yeah. exactly right and yeah. so yeah but as, as you look towards next year you've got a cumulative a potential cumulatory effect possible two percent on medicare sequestration four percent on paygo and that's mm -hmm. before you even talking about things that are specific to the house of medicine yeah now uh shay timeline what are we looking at? Uh, what are our members looking at? When are we going to say we've either resolved this or not? Congress has currently funded the government on a short-term basis until mm -hmm. December 16th. It's part of a continuing resolution bill, which is a term used for a short-term government funding bill that pushes it basically until the week before Christmas. Okay. Um, Congress is going to return after the elections with a Thanksgiving break ahead of them, but basically they're looking at like four or five weeks of legislative action to sort out all these things that they need to do before the end of the year. Address expiring programs across the government, figuring out how to hopefully fund the government on a long-term basis, address some policies that have basically been shelved for the entire year that have kind of created this backlog of things that they want to do before the end of the year, and um, hopefully have one last kumbaya moment before shutting the doors on the 117th Congress. There you go. So we're looking at December 16th as the most likely date where that government funding bill is going to happen, but they've left mm -hmm. themselves a one-week buffer, which means that if negotiations are going sour, the December 16th date could even slip into the week before Christmas. December yeah. 23rd is a Friday, really the last potential day where any member of Congress is likely to be in town. I mm -hmm. think it's more likely that by December 16th, we see this all wrapped up. There's a lot of members that are going to be ready to go home for the holidays right. and just get out of Dodge, but they've got a lot yeah. to do to before then. And the one thing that can force members of Congress to come to the table is a holiday deadline. And so that's what they're facing. Right. In December. Sure. Ted, um, I want to bring you into the conversation around there's a there's a bill right now, uh, kind of a marker bill out there, H.R. 8800, um, sponsored by do uh, doctors. They're both doctors, but uh, doc uh, Congressman Barra and Bouchon. What does that bill do? And what you know, we're going to ask our members to kind of ask their member of Congress to sign on to that. But what, how is that going? Yeah, I mean, what we're trying to do is recap some of the cuts. I believe it's a four point four two. Uh, increase that we're looking at. Um, and, and whether that's going to happen or not, we don't know. We have a, over 60 co-sponsors already. It was introduced September 15th. Yeah. So within the span of a month, we've already gotten 60 co-sponsors. I think uh, it's really hard right now. And, and I think Shay kind of alluded to it, is that there's so much fatigue right now on mm -hmm. us doing this every six months, nine months, mm -hmm. one year. There's no long-term solution and I think 
the problem that we're facing is all of this is expensive. So for instance, right. uh, HR 8800, I believe the, the estimated price tag could be in the $2 billion range. Okay? Something like that, yeah. That, that is not insignificant amount of money, mm -hmm. uh, particularly for something that could be a relatively short-term fix. It's not a long-term, more structural fix to the payment system. Right. Um, now there's, there's a pool of money called the Medicare Improvement Fund. I believe that's maybe got $7 billion in it. But that's not only going to be available to, to folks like us. I mean, that's really going to be expansive to, mm -hmm. to pretty much anyone who's trying to get their interests represented and, and protected. And, um, you know, like Shay alluded to, there's everyone is kind of coming into this lame duck scenario with a lot that needs to be done in a short amount of time. And, you know, I think we're going to see the very real potential that things could go from December and slide to February. That oh, really? They may, oh, they wow. may address uh -huh. it, but they may not address it. We've seen in, in years past where they've done retro. We've seen that before, which right. is a real pain in the butt for a lot of your members who are trying yep. to figure out how oh. to go about submitting their, you know, their payments. And, um, yep. but yeah, I, I think to your point, it's, it's really a, a placeholder more than anything else. It, it's yeah. basically saying, we are interested in trying to fix this in the short term right now. And mm -hmm. we've got some, some, some targets we're looking to hit as far as what type of uh, increase we want for the payment to offset some of the cuts. But I, but I think, you know, we don't have a Senate companion bill. We've got a lot of support in the Senate as far as a, a kind of a, a courtesy letter to colleagues and right. leadership saying from, from many senators. Yeah. Saying, there's, hey, a, there's a letter going around a, bunch of senators are signing that says hey can you fix this but right I, and but again very vague and i i think we are and, and, and to ted's point it's sort of stopping short of co-sponsoring a bill and putting right. formal yeah. legislation out there it's a little lighter touch it, yeah. and, I, and i think you know this is the game that we're constantly always playing because if you have a bill that's super prescriptive or you have a letter that's super now you've put yourself in the corner now you don't have as much negotiating right and so if we can be kind of to the point, but at the same time, flexible enough in the language of a letter or the language of a bill. And it allows us to have that maneuverability. I think that's super huge. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we have a ton of centers who have who've jumped on both R's and D's to this letter saying, hey, we need to address this situation. Yeah. Um, now it's a matter of how we address it for how long we address it. Um, but the, the 8800 is not going to pass yeah. a standalone bill. That's something It'll... that would be included in a larger vehicle. So um, people have asked me, you know, they've said, Bob, why is it different this year? I mean, we've been making this battle every year for 15 years. Why is it different? And I've, and I've been, and you heard us talk with Kit about access. Are, are you hearing the same thing, Ted, in the kind of circles you run in and Shay? It, it, I think it is a little bit different. It's, it's coming out of COVID. Um, physicians are tough to recruit. Um, there are access issues. There's a lot of questions around that. I, I'll tell you this, and this is, a detrimental comment to the work that we do, mm -hmm. which so it's weird to, to kind of preface it in that way. But right. no matter how bad workforce is, mm -hmm. no matter how bad the cuts are, our docs aren't going to go on strike. Right. No. I mean, the, no. it, so, so access may not be as good, but there will always be access because right. that's what, that's what our docs have that's signed what we up do. to do. Sure. And yeah. so I think there's a little bit of, um, I, I think the, the lack of ability of our folks to just stop providing the service mm -hmm. actually hurts them. I'm not advocating mm -hmm. for them to go on a strike, but I don't yeah. think there's a sense of fear that is right. going to become such at a point 
that now they have to act more than they would normally act. Yeah. I think the other thing, which isn't helpful to be quite honest, and it's all relative, but you know, there's studies that come out with, you know, uh, especially uh, physicians that make the most money and all these types of things. Right. So, so what happens is there's still always a perception. The docs are making theirs. Sure. And, and yeah, maybe they're not making as much as they used to, or maybe it's a mm -hmm. slight cut, but it's, but they're still doing way better than Joe Schmo. Right. No, no, that's, it's and, a, and, yeah, and so I, I would I, agree. I think yeah. that's really difficult. I think with you and Kit and Shay and all you guys talking about patients, I think that's a, that kind of puts a face to all of this. And I right. think that's really critical. Now, the challenge with that is think of all the other patient groups that exist out there, right? I used, oh, to, yeah. work, I used to work for ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. Right. You bring in an ALS patient into a congressional office versus a patient who says, well, I might not be able to get a mammogram right. next week. Right. That, those are two completely different levels of, you know, sympathy, sure. empathy. Yes. That, that, right. So, so it, it's a really tricky balance. Um, but I will tell you the workforce issues, they're real. They're, they're, they're real they're issues. Very real. You know it, Shay, you've heard yeah. it too. And, and that's my concern because what yeah. is the incentive of a really bright young uh, professional to get into medicine and to get in more specifically to radiology when they could get a JD, they can get an MBA yeah. and not have to worry about the government telling them how much sure. they're going to make. Right. Yeah. So right. that's tough. Exactly. Shay, do you hear the same thing from uh, staff members on the Hill about, you know, well, the doctors, you know, they don't have it that bad. Do you hear that, that kind of tune? I, you know what? I think that there is some of that sentiment that's out there. Another thing that I hear sometimes is, well, private equity wouldn't be buying up these practices if there wasn't money to be made there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's there's a sense with the growth in private equity interest in anesthesiology and radiology that this these are sort of, you know, it's over leveraged and mm -hmm. sort of areas where they're, they're, the, the there is still a margin there. Yeah. On the other hand, though, one here's what is resonating on Capitol Hill when we talk about it. It's the staffing issue. It's mm -hmm. the hiring. It's understanding that there is no increase in the Medicare physician fee schedule to account for inflation. And so it's not just doctors trying to increase their salaries year over mm -hmm. year. It's every single cost input that goes into managing a practice that's right. becoming more expensive. It's the person at right. the front desk. It's the medical devices. It's the office supplies, the office space, all of the overhead and putting food on the table of every single person necessary behind the scenes to run a practice right. is something that resonates. And then you well, know, and I've, and I've been saying that for years. This is not about physicians' paychecks. Right. This is about providing healthcare, you know, reasonably. It's a business. We're run. Our members are running businesses out there, and they can't do it on that basis. Yeah. Sorry, Shay, I interrupted yeah, you. I think it's a good point, Bob. And the staffing issue is something that also resonates. I feel like mm -hmm. a lot of the recent changes in policy are meant to prioritize primary care over specialty care, with this idea that there's a shortage yeah. of primary care physicians. Right. Primary care isn't paying enough. And so there've been all these policy changes. But on the other hand, we can make a really compelling case. You look at all the posts or all the positions that are available on the ACR job board, and there are no physicians to fill them. Instead, right. practices are not looking to um, current graduates from residency programs. They're looking to people that are earlier and earlier in their residency to secure those commitments up front because they can't find um, residency graduates that are ready to fill full-time MD slots. And yeah, so I was talking to one that, of our managers, they've made an offer to a second year resident they're, I mean, they're going that far back. It's, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh, uh, Ted, let's um, switch a little bit. You had talked about um, there is a, 
a doctor caucus in, in Congress. Right. And right. Um, you had, you had mentioned um, there, there's always questions around. Um, yeah. I'll advocate for an issue, but are you really, are you really in, are you right. really committed to solving this? Right. Talk a little bit about that. Uh, I think that, that's kind of an interesting aspect to this. Yeah. So, you know, we, we talk a lot about the difference between being interested and invested um, and so anyone who has kids certainly understands that, you know, kids have a, a bunch of different interests that at the time are, are super high priority for them. But then when there's a lot of work involved, then they're like, well, maybe I want to just go to a different interest. Right. So they're, they're interested, but are they willing to get invested in, in that particular interest? And I think what you see oftentimes with the doc caucus is, um, you know, they're the, the biggest liaison to leadership and the committee staff that we have. You have um, only 6% of Congress has a healthcare background. So oftentimes mm-hmm. on the House floor, oftentimes in a committee hearing, if there's a break, uh, you'll see the non-healthcare member of Congress approach a physician background member of Congress and say, hey, on this issue, how does this really work? How would this mm-hmm. really work in implementation and in executing this policy as a clinician or as a, sure. uh, you know, a business practice within this, the space of uh, specialty medicine. Right. And that is critically important. Um, and there are times though, within the physician caucus that they're trying to weigh, helping us, uh, supporting us with these issues that they know are very real. Um, and then also making sure that they're good with leadership. And also keep in mind that just because someone is a physician member of Congress doesn't mean that they're on a primary committee of jurisdiction on healthcare because their district right. may be an ag district. It may be a district that has nothing to do with a, a huge healthcare center other than a hospital as an employer, but they, they may have other bigger issues. And so as a result, they're on a different committee. So they don't have they have some influence with their colleagues, but it's not the same level of influence because they're not on that committee of energy and commerce or ways and means or Senate finance, whatever it may be. Uh So um, it's a really big deal, but I think, and I wanted to say this in in the kind of the last uh, thing that we were just talking about, Shay, you kind of referenced a a tiny bit, Bob, you did as well, but Mm -hmm. being able to do these site visits where we can educate as many members of Congress as we can without the healthcare background so that they have a general understanding that there's a difference between a rad tech and a radiologist. They don't know that. Right. Um, But, but I think going back to your question about the doc caucus and and their willingness to support us, they, they are there, they Mm want to help us, but they have a lot of priorities within the physician community yeah. and within the healthcare community that they're getting pinged on. And it's hard to get them to, to stand up, but when they do yeah. stand up and support us, like they are with 8,800, it's yeah. a big deal. Um, and, and, is and, it, am and I, their absence is noticeable too. If yeah. they're not supporting us. Am I correct in saying that this year, essentially all doctors are getting cut. Uh, I know a couple of years ago, the primary care guys were getting a bump and we're getting cut, but this year it looks like everybody's getting cut with some rare exceptions. That, yeah, I don't know, Shay. Okay. I don't know if you're, I would assume. Yeah, what's, uh, what the, the one caveat that I'll point out is that hospitals are actually getting an increase due to inflation this yeah, year. Right. And so hospital reimbursements are up. It's just totally different policy rules that govern the way that hospitals are reimbursed versus physicians. And so physician reimbursement is going down at the same time that the hospital sector is is going up. So I think that's really the biggest discrepancy here. However, yeah. you know, physicians across different specialties and, and primary care are mostly experiencing some of the same year over year reductions that we're talking about. Yeah. And I don't know if the listeners all saw in the chat, uh, our good friend, Beth Williams out in Seattle area, 
um, she chatted, she said, one of the, one of our health systems, which has six hospitals is closing beds as they can't continue to staff with travelers, temporary staff. She said, this will absolutely hit access. They believe the public has to be engaged and impacted by this to create noise, to get support. So that's very interesting using, using that tactic as a, as a, as a talking point. Our uh, uh, emergency departments will be overrun with boarding patients. Our radiology practice will render more emergent care and not uh, inpatient care. Um, primary care physician access is way down too, which is interesting. So she said, if you try to find a primary care uh, physician in her area, it's a four month wait. Um, and then access is a real issue. Feds and our reps need to understand this is headed to a very real crisis. So that's a really interesting uh, frontline uh, chat here. And thank you, Beth Williams, for that. Appreciate wow. that. And I, are those the kinds of messages we need our members to send today uh, with members of Congress out there campaigning? Just that example? I, I think it's helpful. I mean, I think yeah. you have to find, again, the right balance. You, you don't want to be overly dramatic in how, you know, the sky's falling, the world's going to sure. end and that sure. type of thing. But this example that we see in this chat, this is yeah. a real example, clearly. This is not something that's being exaggerated or kind of a fear right. tactic, but this is real. I think anytime that you can provide this type of anecdotal thing to a member of Congress or a congressional staff member, particularly their district, they're yeah. going to care a lot about this. Now, right. again, it, it comes down to, to, to Bob, your point about being kind of the interested versus invested, a mm -hmm. member of Congress and say, yeah, I'm with you. I want to do everything I can to help you. Right. But at the end of the day, it's going to come down to committee staff and it's going to yep. come down to leadership if they're going to be willing to spend the money because right. this, is, this is a costly fix a costly that we thing. need. Yeah. And so at what point does does the priority of we need to fix this situation get to like, okay, it doesn't matter how much it's going to cost. Right. This is a problem. So let's kind of go into that. Um, we have our Congressional Committees of Jurisdiction, Ways and Means, House Ways and Means, House Energy and Commerce, and Senate Finance Committee. Uh, Shay, that simply means that those three committees rule health care, correct? No doubt about it. I mean, they are the gatekeepers of health care policy, and Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Mitch McConnell, and Kevin McCarthy go straight to the leaders of those committees when determining what do you have consensus on what um because they're the experts the, uh, you know a lot right. of the same doctors that are in the doctor's caucus ted we're talking about a lot of the people that are invested in these issues not just during crunch time but they've spent the last two years focusing on some of these issues um as you know part of this 117th congress they're the experts and, and they're and they're the gatekeepers of policy so a lot of power um is uh centered around those committees and, and just so everybody knows, we have a, a small group of RBMA leaders coming into Washington on November the 15th. Shea is organizing meetings with members and staff members of these three committees. And I know, Ted, the uh, ACR is doing the same uh, that week, right? Virtually. Yeah, we're doing a, a micro-targeted virtual Hill Day on the 16th and 17th of November, specifically geared towards the committees you referenced, Ways and Means, Commerce, and then finance, and even we're adding the, the help committee just to kind of expand the the messaging a little bit. Sure. Um, but yeah, it's it's a super uh, important time to kind of get it a little bit before Thanksgiving. A lot of people say, well, they're not going to do much before Thanksgiving. Why would you kind of do it then? But really, if you don't tee some yeah. of this stuff up, kind of in enough advance, you know, you can't wait till the last week 
of right. uh, them being in session in mid-December to start to bring it to their attention. You kind of need to lay the groundwork and foundation now. Sure. Now we've been doing, we've been laying groundwork all year, but I think we're kind of reintroducing the groundwork and, and foundation for this, this last, you know, six week sprint, if you will. Yeah. Uh, legislatively. So um, 12 days to election day. Um, who's better for radiology? Who's better for physicians? <laughs> These are ours. I mean, let's go into that. What, what is it or does it matter? Yeah, you know, Shay, what are your what are your thoughts on that? Um I think generally speaking, you look at you look at the physicians caucus, there's a lot of Republicans there. Um, but the other side is that the arguments around patient access and maybe putting more money into the Medicare program tend to resonate a little bit better with Democrats. Republicans are the ones fiscally conscious. Republicans are the ones that are going to demand that any spending on um, on physician issues and the Medicare program in December be offset somewhere else in the healthcare system. I think Democrats would be a little bit more comfortable with some deficit spending that um, props up uh, in important communities and those that are providing services to Medicare beneficiaries. So. I think it goes both ways. We, you know, we have to talk about our issues a little bit differently on on both sides. The types of reforms that are possible certainly change under either side. But, you know, as lobbyists, RBMA, ACR, I think that we all try to position ourselves to be effective regardless of who's in power mm -hmm. in Washington. Right. So it's a circular way of answering your question, and maybe yeah. not most directly, but. Um, uh, uh, you know, I've, we've got friends on both sides of the aisle, and I think we're prepared yeah. to um, we're prepared to negotiate with whoever's holding the gavels. Yeah, yeah some, I, it's the old Reagan answer. Some of my friends are, you know, fans of the Phillies, and some of my friends are fans of Houston. I'm with my friends, right? Yeah. Go ahead, I, Ted. Yeah, Shay, I, I think Shay makes a lot of great points there. Um, I I think the messaging has to be targeted to to whom you're talking with, and I think that there's a certain level of connectivity. Uh, with one party with one type of a message versus the other party and the other type of message, the patient oriented with the Democrats and that kind of the business perspective and, and stuff like that. I think that we don't do that enough, honestly, on the Republican side. I think when you have conversations with Republican members and you say, hey, we're going to have you visit a radiology practice. Okay, you visited it. And what did you learn? Well, what I learned was we're, we may cut you 10%. How are you going to afford that new MRI? How are you going mm -hmm. to afford recruiting two or three new radiologists that you desperately need in order to continue your, your level of providing access to patients in our district? That is a business thing, and we shouldn't shy away from that. And I yeah. think that that really resonates on the Republican side, just like on the and that that doesn't mean that Republicans don't care about patients. And it doesn't mean that you know Democrats don't care about businesses. But traditionally, that's kind of how they look at things. Um, yeah. And I, I think Shay's spot on about that. And the, the thing I will tell you is, um, I don't think one party in particular is better for us, but certainly there are particular members of Congress who we are more closely aligned. And okay. some of them, some of them may be Republicans. Some of them, you yeah. know, Marsha Blackburn is very good to us on mammography. Mm -hmm. Debbie Wasserman Schultz is very good for us on mammography. You can't find mm -hmm. two members of Congress probably on the more opposite sides of the political spectrum than those two. And they're both good on, on that particular issue, right? Yeah. So it really kind of depends on the member of Congress and the relationship and their level of, of interest and investment in our issues. Yeah. It would is it does it make sense for our members today to look at you know, there's a congressional race in every district. Some are already predetermined, some not so much. But is it worth our members' time today to say, 
oh, there's a candidate forum coming up or this member of Congress is having a, you know, something, I should go to that and hand them something. Is that is that valuable to do today? I, I you know, personally, I would, I, I think it's a different answer depending on who it is. If it's a okay. candidate, I would not give it to a candidate. The candidate has one goal. That candidate's one goal is to win. win. And that candidate's not even going to get sworn in until January. So they're not even right. involved in, in the lame duck session. So I'll sure. give you a, I'll give you an example. That's an interesting one. Uh-huh. Uh, in Oregon 5, you had Kurt Schrader, who was the incumbent Democrat, right. very good on our issues. He was a right. vet veterinarian back in the day, previous to coming to Congress. He was on the Energy and Commerce Committee. He lost his primary. Right. Which is a big hit because he was he was very supportive over all these years. Mm-hmm. Now here's a here's maybe an exception to what I just said is the Republican in that race, and mm-hmm. this is traditionally a, a slightly Democrat leaning race, uh, but the Republican in this race is the wife of an anesthesiologist, mm. and she has run the practice. Oh wow! For over ten years. Yeah. When okay. I met when I met her, she knew more about coding. Mm-hmm. than probably anyone involved at the rock. I mean, right. it was insane. I felt like I was talking to all these, you know, uh, members of yours, Bob, all the RBMA yeah. type people. And she's going right. on and on about, co- and now someone like her, you want to give her the information because she will hit the ground running in January. Yeah. She'll get but, that, but she's still not going to be involved in the lame duck. Yeah. Whereas if it's someone who is a, in a current incumbent member of Congress and they're on the committee of jurisdiction, uh, then, then sure. I would definitely, uh, make it known uh, right. to that incumbent because they will be coming back and, and it'll be top of mind, hopefully, potentially for them. Yeah. But I think it has to depend on, unless it's a rare situation like the one in sure. Oregon, I think yeah. you let a candidate just you know, worry yeah. about trying to win the race. So, so the message to our members today over the next two weeks is, hey, if you're going to be at the county fair and you know Congressman so-and-so is going to be there, email us. We'll get you some information that you can hand to them that might be helpful. And uh we can we can advise you on that. So that that's a that's a great uh, activity. Yeah, so, Bob. And beyond yeah. that, you know, it's it's their DC offices, not their campaign mm-hmm. offices, right. that are thinking about what's going to happen when those members come back to town. The sure. Week or the or so after the election. Yep. Um, so it never hurts to call their DC office and yeah, ask, sure. who's handling healthcare issues um, in the congressman's DC office? Right. Track down that person's email address and send them an email saying that this is what's on my mind that I'm hoping that, you know, Congressman Smith comes back to Washington in November, uh, ready to address before the end of the year, because it's those legislative staffers that are basically going to hand a vote recommendation to the boss before he goes to the floor. And um, for half these members, they might not have a lot of familiarity with the fact that physician issues are even still pending on the table until they get that vote recommendation. And so sometimes yeah. influencing the staff member is just as important as influencing the member themselves. It, and this, this one thing I want to jump on, because I think this is something that kind of goes a little bit under the radar, just from my, my background being on the official, we call the official side being at like the congressional side office, mm-hmm. as opposed to the political side. Uh, but I, I totally agree with Shay. You've got to hit the congressional staff, the campaign staff. There's a real separation and just kind of knowing what's happening and procedurally and, and just kind of all that type of stuff. There's a, a little bit of a disconnect and it's probably a good thing. Right. But I will tell you, if you're on the campaign trail and you're somehow involved in that campaign 
and you start hearing a lot of chirping about one or two particular issues, it will get mm-hmm. to the campaign manager. And sometimes that campaign manager is the chief. Sometimes it's the person, the chief, you know, usually yeah. it's the person, the chief of staff pick. And there's conversations between the campaign manager and chief of staff. Like, man, all we do when we're on this campaign trail is people are beating yeah. us up on this Medicare issue. They're beating us up. They're beating us up. So it, it doesn't have to be to the actual member of Congress, but sometimes the the local staff, the campaign staff can get a little spooked because they don't know and they yeah. just hear it. And then they kind of freak out a little bit and they, they kind of have to go to the chief of staff right away. They have to talk to the LD, the legislative director right away. Hey, we want to put this on your guys' radar. You might need to be prepared for this for the lame duck session. But to Shay's point, yeah, you want to you want to talk to the, the congressional staffer sure. in D.C. because they're the ones who are making those those recommendations on the the vote memos and all that type of stuff so ted what are, what's rad pack spending this uh a lot oh my lot. gosh i don't know and, if i don't know if, if my family spends more on amazon boxes during the holidays <laughs> or a rad pack right now i feel like it's a tie but uh right. yeah i we're about uh ready to do well we've just completed about one hundred and seventy thousand dollars in contributions just last month alone great in september uh we have two Actually, excuse me, we have three independent expenditures that are currently running, uh, one for Kathy McMorris Rogers in Washington State. Uh-huh. Uh, that's a little bit strategic because she doesn't really need the support, but it's important for her to know that we continue to support sure. her because uh-huh. she could be potentially the next chair of the Energy and Commerce Committee. Uh-huh. We're also helping Ashley Hinson, who is a rising star. She's in Iowa. Now, she does have a tighter race, and she does need the support. She's on the appropriations committee and she's someone that we really want to start building a relationship with. And then uh, on the Democrat side, Angie Craig, really mm-hmm. tough race in Minnesota. She's on the energy and commerce committee. She's got a, a great healthcare background. She's great on all of our issues. She knows our radiologists really great. well, works really hard. And so each of those three campaigns are uh, going to be well over uh, 75 to a hundred thousand each. Uh, so let's help Radpack today, everyone. Go on, uh, was it radpack.org? Uh, radpack.org, yep. Radpack.org, get your $100 out and send it in. Donate to Radpack and uh, help out radiology. Guys, we got to move on to the predictions. This is really the most important part of the whole day. <laughs> so I have picked out uh, I've picked out uh, five Senate races and then uh, the House numbers. So uh, we're going to get on the border. We've got an official, this is really cool. Je- thanks to uh, Jessica Struve. So uh, we're going to start in Arizona, uh, Kelly and Masters. Uh, what, what? Let's uh, Shay. What? What's your call on this? I've got I've got Kelly edging out, edging out Masters there. It's going to be a pretty close race, but um, I think that the Democrats are likely to uh, to keep that seat in Arizona. All right, Ted. What do you think? I I agree. If you're looking at this, they just had a debate, but Arizona um, has started really trending a lot more purple and blue. Yeah. Um, and and the Democrat campaign uh, operations are starting to dump a lot more money into this race uh, because they, they're not dumping it in other races. So I think Arizona is going to stick with uh, Kelly. And, and I mean, how can you vote against an astronaut? I mean, come on. All right. So Nevada, <laughs> we've got uh, Senator Cortez Masto in a really tight rate with uh, Adam Laxalt, who's the son of the former governor and U.S. Senator. Uh, Ted, what's your call there? I, You know, I think this one stays in Democrat control, too. I think this one's a little dicier than Arizona personally. I think this is more of a real true toss up. Uh-huh. Um, but I, I think that she has done just enough. And I think there's enough on an investment uh, with her her side of the race to, to kind of just get her to eke in. I think she yeah. will. The other thing I want to say, 
selfishly she's very close to jackie rosen jackie oh, rosen okay. is the other senator in the state jackie rosen's husband's a radiologist so we kind of have a little bit of a bias right. there let's that keep race. that a bias is important on election day <laughs> shay what do you what's your call this is going to be one of the closest races in the country yep. in uh -huh. my opinion potentially the closest senate race just to make sure that ted and i don't go tat for tat i'm going to take laxalt <laughs> and just a right. small um uh and a very narrow victory here um right. which uh which might just be enough to help republicans lift republicans to a one-seat majority but um yeah i think nevada is among the races that folks should be watching on election night because it's really one of three in my opinion that's going to determine um party control of the senate all right great so let's move to georgia uh really weird race <laughs> i mean i just uh, watching it from afar it's just like this is just can't get any more bizarre so uh, shay what's your call there warnock or walker herschel walker has proved to be one of the worst candidates um <laughs> that republicans have put up this cycle and if his personal faults aren't enough to um uh to prevent him from winning this campaign then pretty much anyone can get elected i'm taking warnock and okay. um i think that this should have been a layup for republicans if they were looking at the seat a month ago or i'm sorry a year ago but um now less than two weeks out from the election i think that yeah. it's democrats to lose Ted? Yeah, I'm going to agree. And I've actually met Herschel Walker when he played for the Eagles a long time ago back home in Philadelphia. <laughs> there you he's go. He's a very, very nice guy, but, yeah. you know, candidates matter and, and he's kind yeah. of proven himself to be pretty consistently a, as a bad candidate. Yeah. Okay. Uh, North Carolina, really interesting race. Uh, former um, Supreme Court uh, justice there, Beasley and Bud mm -hmm. in an open seat. Uh, where are we going? We're going to Ted. Yeah. I, yeah. I think Bud's got this one. I really uh -huh. do. I, I think um, there's been a lot of changes demographically in the state of, of North Carolina, but that said, I still really feel like at its core, it's, it's still red enough to get through and, and uh, allow uh, Bud to win this, the seat. All right. Shay, crystal ball that. Ted Bud has led every single poll in the state that's come out since the month of September, and some of those have been within the margin of error. So it's yeah. going to be a close race, but Bud has sort of proved to consistently hold the edge. North Carolina's trending closer to be a purple state, but Republicans just slightly still have that stranglehold statewide, and I think North Carolina stays red. All right, here we are in my home, my home state, in my backyard. We got two of the. <laughs> that, this is one of the strangest. Watching the ads up here, Fetterman and Oz are just really strange. So, uh, Shay, what's your call on this? The big guy versus the doctor, huh? Call this recency bias, Bob, but yeah. I think that following the debate this week, I think that there were some viral moments on both sides, but I think Fetterman's health issues, which have been a large, um, it's really kind of dominated the campaign over the last right. month are going to be punctuated further by some of his um, oral stumbles during his mm -hmm. presentation at the debate. And yeah. I think it's going to be enough for Oz to, uh, to narrowly beat him. So Do you? Okay. I, I'm, I'm, I'm taking Oz there if I have to go on the record, but um, abortion is also a key issue in that state. And Oz didn't yeah. get away from that debate unscathed. He made some yeah. pretty controversial remarks himself that yeah. uh, are going to drive democratic turnout in the last two weeks. Super interesting race, but I'm taking Oz. Yeah, and, and so Ted, you're from the suburban Philly, where you yeah. know it's always won or lost. What do you think? Yeah, no, that usually uh, the county where I grew up, Chester County, is kind of a little bit of a bellwether there, and mm -hmm. it's trended more uh, purple blue over the years. But I, I agree with Shay here. I think um, Oz will win. I think it'll be close, 
actually. And I think turnout will be very high in the state. I agree yeah. with Shay. There's a lot of reason for a lot of folks to be motivated. And I think uh, you'll see uh, a, a pretty decent good uh, turnout number there. But I think Oz squeezes it out. I don't think it's going to be a big gap. Yeah. Uh, but I think Oz will win. Seems to be a lot of votes splitting up here, too, with the Democratic candidate for Governor Shapiro and maybe people splitting with Oz. So the House numbers, what do you think they're going to be, Shay? The split. Well, I think that uh, my guess is Ted and I will probably agree that mm -hmm. um, Republicans look to be significant uh, favor, uh, significant favorites to take the House. And yeah. polling uh, on the generic ballot, which I think is particularly important in the House, has shifted towards Republicans over the last several months. There's just a new USA Today poll out today that shows that Republicans have basically increased their standing about eight points in the wow. generic election yeah. ballot from the month of July today, going from about, you know, four point, um, a four point deficit in the generic ballot to uh, four point favorites. I think that that's going to help carry a lot of close races. I look at Republicans and having about a 20 seat majority. I'll say okay. 227 to which would leave the other 208 seats to All right. um uh to Democrats. I got you so down. All right. 208 Democrat and 227 Republican. I had to do all some right. quick math here. Uh, I was going to say I can't to make sure that, that all adds up. Never do math in public. Ted, what about you? I, you know, I'm pretty close to Shay on this. I had just written down 229, 206. And okay. I started to laugh when he said 227 because <laughs> people think he and I should go to Vegas and just, you know, run the table for a couple of weeks together. We'll either do really well or really bad. Um, yeah, I, if you look at it, you know, I think, and we haven't even really talked about this, but yeah. the the amount of seats that are democ democratically held currently or that are open seats that were previously held kind of held by a Democrat member, they're trending very hard R right now. Um, and you have a lot that are, are really likely to, to flip because the Dems are pulling out, the DCCC is pulling out their money in some of these seats. Um, so I, I think it's definitely going to be Republican uh, majority come next Congress for sure in the House. think Bob got frozen. Well, Ted, I think we're sort of at the point where, uh, where Bob was probably getting ready to sign us off of uh, his podcast. And I appreciate your predictions. It's no surprise that we're on the same page when it comes to the way that um, the, the way we view things going down in a couple of weeks. Um, and then if, uh, if our predictions hold true, I might just have to take you up on that, uh, on that idea to, uh, to go play some cards uh, out in Vegas. You know, you know that you owe me one drink. And uh, we've, we've already agreed upon that. We just need to cash it in. Here I am. Know. I'm back. I don't know. Fair, what, Bob. I just got, I got deleted, but anyway, I'm back. Hey, I've got your I've got your results. We got them here. Uh, that'll probably be worth a beer or something after after it's over. So, guys, I really appreciate it. Um, you had a lot of insight. You're great advocates for uh, radiology for our members, for the doctors, and I uh, just can't thank you enough for spending some time today and having some fun as we as we go through this. So, Ted, Thanks I know you're rooting for Philly. Shay, I don't know who you're rooting for besides Notre Dame, but uh, hope your team. <laughs> <is>. so, <laughs> 
Great. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks, Bob. Go Phils. Yeah, take care. So, folks, we want a, a couple of things here before we sign off. Rise above the chaos with three productivity hacks at the Next Chapter Webinar Consortium webinar on November 15th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Our speaker, Kelly Whittle, who's the founder and CEO of Valero Health, will provide a fast-paced look at the pandemic impact on productivity and three hacks to rise above the chaos. So you can register now at rbma.org forward slash chapter webinars, all one word. Later that week on Thursday, November 17th, we'll have another virtual double header feature our next episode of A Word with Bob Live at 1 p.m. Eastern, followed by Rad Marketers Live at 3 p.m. Eastern. On A Word with Bob Live, I'll welcome our good friend, attorney Ken Davis, for a play-by-play -play of hot legal issues in radiology. So you can also register now on that rbma.org forward slash podcast. During uh, Rad Marketers Live, Tom Marshall will present Making a List, Checking It Twice, Be Intentional with Deliberate Intention. And you can register now with that at rbma.org forward slash calendar. We have a great um, closing. Thank you for attending. Little little baseball song as we go out, watch the World Series, go Phillies. Hope your team wins. And uh, let's go vote on election day. How about it? Take care. Thanks for joining me.